All right, welcome to uh, Single Minded Conversations. I am your host, Jesse Single. I'm a podcaster and journalist. Uh, just finished recording the next episode of Blocked and Reported. That's my uh, main gig with Katie Herzog. Our latest episode is about all the Felicia Somnes drama. Um, but I'm here today to talk about something very different. And it's about a really long post I just put up that you might want to follow along. Not on the whole thing, but on some of the basics. If you go to jessysingle.substack.com, you'll see that I posted something called Science Verse Cited Seven Studies to Argue That There's No Controversy About Giving Puberty Blockers and Hormones to Trans Youth. Let's read them. So this isn't, you know, this is sort of a um, piece about Science Verse in particular. Science Verse is a um, podcast that is on Gimlet. They build themselves as a show that, quote, takes on fads, trends, and the opinionated mob to find out what's fact, what's not, and what's somewhere in between. I'm getting like a weird um, – I'm connected, right? Someone just throw me an emoji to make sure that you all can hear me. There we go. There are the – yes, so many emojis. Okay. The post – my post isn't really about science versus like I criticize them, but it's basically about the fact that in this area of medicine, puberty blockers and hormones – and I think everyone knows the basics, but the idea is puberty blockers block puberty for trans kids so they don't develop secondary sex characteristics that will bring – worsen their gender dysphoria – and hormones allow them to physically transition in some ways to the you know the other sex, male or female. Um, this is an area where a lot of people, including a lot of parents, are told that we have really clear research. We have studies that show over and over and over that this these interventions are incredibly important for the health of trans kids. And the most frequent way this communication is imparted is by saying, if you don't give kids these treatments, they will kill themselves. So... Um, Wendy Zuckerman, who is the host of Science Versus, in March, she, she said, so overall, hormones have some risks, and they're not easily reversible, but the top dogs in the space are all on board with this, not only hormones, but puberty blockers, too. A bit later, she says, and the reason, it, she, she says they're not controversial. She continues, the reason it's not controversial is because, again, we need to look at what happens if you do nothing like you don't allow your kids to go on hormones. She goes on to suggest, uh, cite a study showing apparently lower suicidality for kids who don't go on hormones. Uh, and then in the show notes, there are six different citations. So I took a long time to go through all these six citations and reference the study she talks about and just show that none of the studies really support the idea of a causal link between blockers or hormones and improved well-being. They're really mixed findings. Some of them are just incapable of telling us much in part because they studied cohorts of kids that were doing really well at baseline. This is like a consistent problem in some of this research. If a kid has no depression symptoms at baseline and then they go on hormones or blockers and then a year or two years later, they also they still have almost no depression symptoms. That doesn't really tell you anything about whether puberty blockers or hormones can alleviate depression symptoms. That's one problem with a lot of these studies. They're generally uncontrolled. They don't have a comparison arm. They don't have a group of otherwise similar kids who didn't go on hormones. Uh, the one study that had like a true comparison arm in this was it, it was a group of kids who had other mental health problems that the kids who went on blockers didn't have. That means you can't really compare the two because there's like a big confound there. So, I mean, people can read this very long post for themselves and, and maybe I'm not being unfair, but I really thought science versus, which is telling parents, they're telling parents you have to put your kids on these treatments or they might become suicidal, which is like the most serious thing imaginable to say about medical treatment. And it's the sort of most profound endorsement for medical treatment you can imagine. This can save lives. 
They cite seven studies that don't provide evidence for this. I found that to be shocking. I found that to unfortunately be like of a piece with a lot of media coverage of this issue. And I've just been consistently dismayed by this. And I think it's worth spending a lot of time digging deeply into what these studies say. And, and um, there's some, we got some folks lining up in the queue. I just want to make one point, like the most, I guess high quality and influential study here is a 2014 study out of the Netherlands. This is the so-called Dutch clinic, um, the so-called Dutch study. They found a group of kids who they tracked from the time they sort of put them on blockers into young adulthood were doing well at adulthood. This is some of the best evidence we have. It's like medium-term follow-up. These kids were screened so carefully for mental health problems. If a kid had severe mental health problems that weren't under control or they didn't have family support or they had physical health problems or they had like any other reasons to suspect they wouldn't have a successful transition, they were excluded from this protocol. They couldn't go on the blockers and hormones. So you have a group of kids where – let me just find one statistic to show what you need, what I mean, Beck depression. Um, at baseline, they gave these kids something called the Beck depression inventory, which has a range of 0 to 63. 63 is like through the roof depression. Um, at baseline, these kids had a 7.89 average score on a 63-point scale. They had They had – Almost no depression symptoms. This is the subclinical range. And then at the end of the study, they also had almost no depression symptoms. This this can't tell you anything about this situation where a kid arrives at a gender clinic horribly depressed, horribly anxious, if you want to know whether blockers and hormones are likely to alleviate those symptoms. It is incredibly irresponsible for science versus and for some like even bigger name scientific authorities to claim that we know, we know that these treatments are associated with like the serious alleviation of severe psychological distress. There's also the problem, uh, one more thing, and then I'll get to the call, sorry. Uh, there's also the problem that some of the studies don't control for access to counseling or medication. If you're following a group of kids over two years, and during that time they go on blockers or hormones, and they're in counseling, and they're on medication, it really is something you would learn in like the second week of a statistics course that any changes in their mental health or any variables, you can't just say, oh, that's the hormones or that's the count. You need to, you need to adjust or control for other potential variables. And a lot of studies don't do that at all. I, I found one study in this, um, that science versus sites where they did control for that stuff. And guess what? They, they found basically no effects of puberty blockers or hormones or, or, or no associations with improved outcomes over time. For two-thirds of the sample, the female-to-male folks, trans boys and trans men, no effects of hormones and blockers, nothing. Uh, that's To present that as evidence that you should put your kids on hormones or blockers it will kill themselves, it just it, – it's fucking – out. it's horrible. It's horrible. It's unethical. That's the only word I have for it. Anyway, I get slightly triggered by this stuff. Justin, what's up? Hey there, Jesse. Hey. Um, Thanks again. Uh, great article so far. I've literally been trying to read it all morning between It'll take you sixteen up. hours, probably. It's way too. I think it's twelve thousand words. I don't blame you. Yeah, I'm about uh, yeah. I think two thirds of the way through. Anyway, it's pretty good. Um, so uh, I want to follow up. I listened to your your last podcast with Katie, and uh, she said something that I think applies a lot to the findings that came out of that um, that the science versus uh, piece. Um, uh, which is like only right-wing men seem to be able to talk about this now. And uh, this actually came up uh, also, I heard from uh, Megan Murphy, who was on Rogan. Um, I was listening to that before and uh, she made the same, same kind of point. And it, it's just been so obvious for, for such a long time that you can't talk straight about this topic in left-wing spaces. 
So, of course, you're going to hear about it more prominently in right-wing spaces. Uh, and it, this just seems like such an obvious bias that's affecting, you know, uh, this Science Versus article, it's just general reporting on the subject. Um, it, it's why you're a bigot. Um, it, <laughs> Huge bigot. Uh, yeah, um, it, I, I just find it odd that that, um, that there's this complaint that oh why why do these guys get a voice? It's because well they have an audience that will listen to them is the, I think the main thing. Yeah, well, and I mean I think the niche I think that is worth carving out here is just focusing on the medical question because right. there's no mystery about what constitutes a useful versus less useful medical study. And and I as I point out in the article, I really just use the same tools I use to um, to write a book about bad social science that no one really complained about except some of the researchers I targeted. Uh, and the fact that you can use the same tools in this area that you use in other areas, that if you write about this area in that way, you're you're a bigot and you're accused of killing people. I mean, it's it's very crazy and it's a very unhealthy, toxic climate for parents who do need to make these decisions about serious medical treatment. So uh, I'm with you. I, I will say I think things are softening a little bit and – but yeah. it's still it's still like dismaying to me that of course when I tweet about this I'm only going to get vast majority of the retweets will be like center and to the right when I would think anyone should care about whether the data on this stuff is actually um, you know solid. But um, anyway, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Justin. I appreciate it. I, I, I do have a, a specific thing just about the, the topic more more directly though. Sure. Um, reading through this and a lot of just kind of you know research I've uh, like osmos throughout the years um i get the impression that a lot of these studies are first of all just terrible in, in construction um and, and in the findings that they pull out of whatever data they did manage yeah. to gather um it, but very consistently low effect sizes low confidence uh typically very low sample sizes which is not a surprise truthfully um i don't see a very strong case underlying moving forward with these kinds of treatments, given all the data that we have. And I always think of this as like, what is the trade-off that we're making here? It's not just a matter of, um, is this helpful for trans kids? But um, pushing children into this path, it, 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 the matter of screening to me has always been like the core underlying issue here. Um, if we're not properly screening the kids, especially this, this I'm mostly going to talk in the context of children, like you did in this article, um, if we're not properly screening kids, then putting somebody on this path, which is pretty well documented to just not be a great path for someone to be on, given all of these mental health effects, um, seems to be a danger of its own. And um, I, I don't want to say that there's no place for any any care for children uh, or adults, but yeah. uh, so it, it seems I, like it would be unethical in another context. I, I think what I, the furthest I'm willing to go on that is that for a kid who doesn't have the background of the kids in the, the most established studies. So like the Dutch study was kids who had persistent childhood gender dysphoria that stuck around for years and that didn't improve over time. If you don't at least have that and you put a kid on these treatments, you have, you have zero evidence about what it will do to them and if it will help them. Uh, that's even setting aside the other sort of sample bias issues about how the kids were doing well at baseline. Other groups of kids, kids who manifest gender dysphoria like later in adolescence and who don't have the history of childhood gender identity, uh, a gender dysphoria, 
I'm not saying they're not trans. I'm not saying they won't benefit from treatment, but we have, we have zero data on that. Like it really goes to close to zero data in terms of rigorous studies tracking them over time. So I continue to think there's a place for blockers and hormones, but the more I've gotten to know the data and the weaknesses in it and how much people are, if this is a word, miss over extrapolating from what the Dutch clinicians found to completely different settings. Um, I'm, I'm very worried about it. So um, yeah, maybe I, I you could do a, maybe you could do a counterpiece to this, which is something like the steel man case for them. For- yeah, that would be useful. I, I should think more about that. I mean, I, I think you'll see if you read the piece closely, I try to steal man, like here's sort of positive things from this study, this study, this study. I just always, um, Try to put it in context, but yeah, uh, anyway. even those are, are weak. Uh, anyways, thank you. Yeah, Blood Knight, what is up? Blood Knight, you got to unmute yourself. Okay, did that work? That did. Excellent. This app is uh, interesting. Um, uh, thanks, Jesse. Uh, uh, big fan of your work. First time I've actually been able to call into this show. Uh, I did get your book, which I liked large parts of it. Thank you. I look forward to you actually uh, trying out another one at some point. I would like to. Um, don't want to get... It's like, I can't really talk much on your suggested topic because I've not really finished uh, reading it. But I was wondering... Um, uh, you, you've written a couple articles regarding like uh, gun violence and... Uh, the whole idea of the, the conflict between a desire to enforce gun laws and uh, putting minorities in prison. Um, I, I just don't see a, maybe other people are just thinking differently, but it's like, I don't see a big conflict between do not want guns on street and wanting to put less black dudes in jail. I mean, just don't put them in there for minor drug crimes and stuff like that. But I mean, not having guns on the street seems like a good idea and having more police and less guns. Yeah. I mean, my, my argument is just that if you actually enforce these gun laws and the history of this has been, there's pretty like tough sentencing and sentencing enhancements, even if you're picked up with a gun for something else. Uh, So, I guess if you if you're not gonna treat gun possession as a serious crime, I think that maybe kneecaps a little bit kneecaps you a little bit in terms of how to deal with the broader issue. I will say there are liberal criminal justice reform um, skeptics of the idea that you need to like make a lot of gun arrests. I, I don't quite understand the argument. The problem is this is an area I've only dipped the toe into. Like I can, I can speak with some degree of authority about like the youth GD stuff, although I'm not an expert expert here. I'm just, I'm sort of operating at a disadvantage because I've only dipped lightly into it. But, but you're saying, you're just saying you don't think there's a conflict there. I don't. Uh, it's like uh, the war on drugs, obvious that's a problem, but you know, we're living in a more dangerous world because there's more guns on the streets. Portland is experiencing a lot of uh, homicides and the like, and there's a direct correlation between gun sales in 2020 and the guns that are showing up amongst the gangs and such. Yep. Uh, I just like, I like cops. I like, well, I, I like good cops. I like policing. I think our neighborhoods are safer if we have good policing. And I think that, uh, 
taking guns away from people and putting away people who are not supposed to possess guns seems to be, you know, good for public safety. So yeah. I, no, that, that's a fair. Winger, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, I can, um, I can understand the argument. I appreciate the uh, call. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Philip Smith. What's up? Yes, hello, Jesse. I was calling about the, I guess, um, some of the trans activism, well, more of like the studies and things that they've been showing. Um, I guess some one of my questions was that um, I saw that puberty blockers, according to like, um, I guess the FDA or something like that, they were using more of them for male to female transitions. Is that correct? I mean, it kind of seems reasonable to me that that would happen. I would expect I everybody- it would because like uh, male puberty includes more much like bigger changes that are harder to even surgically get get rid of whereas it's just harder i think for trans women to pass if they transition after puberty than it is for trans men to pass that that was my assessment too i thought the human body was more sensitive i guess you could say or i don't know maybe testosterone might be the most important sex hormone or something i think it probably has like bigger effect i'm not like as uh, I don't know as much about the endocrinology, but I think testosterone has like more visible and bigger effects more quickly than estrogen. But I could be wrong about that. And I guess I was wondering, like, how does that like function like legally? I guess I've seen some, um, like, I guess websites or something like that talk about like they theorize that it's easier for like a a child, a girl, to get testosterone prescriptions than it is for a man, fully grown adult, probably using it for, I guess, I don't know. I would say control substance purposes or PED purposes. Is that, is that necessarily true or is that something that we should think about as well? Like, are we you know, it? I really don't know. I would imagine my guess would be that on like the black or gray market, there's a huge amount more of testosterone just floating around. Cause like a lot of cisgender men as they get older, seek it out. So I can't say for sure, but that wouldn't surprise me either. Okay. That, that was pretty much like my questions on just the topic and um, how these studies would affect. Got it. Well, thank you, Philip. Those are good questions. No problem. Joshua, what is up? Hey, Jesse. Hey. Um, I guess I'm curious from your knowledge as a journalist interviewing academics and kind of skirting around academia, with all of these articles and studies coming out, and they're so, you just can't avoid the, the politicism and the activism that's involved in it on both sides, to be fair. Do you have any genuine concern about researchers, especially in, in the United States, maybe Canada, where activism is so fervent and often uh, researchers are very involved with that activism about intentional skewing of data? Is, there, is that a concern for you? The reason it's not a major concern, and, and folks should look at the Jack Turbin study, the PLOS One study in my, in my article, you don't, you don't need to intentionally skew data to, to accomplish what you want to accomplish if you're like a devout activist. And I, I think some clinicians, including Turbin, who I've been very critical of, I think they're basically activists and they're dressed as scientists. And I think those roles conflict a little bit. So there are – because – Science is getting better and it does improve over time. And, and, and this gets into some stuff I mentioned in my book. There's still a lot of ways you can just fuck around with data and get the result you want without engaging in outright fraud. And the stakes, if you do engage in outright fraud, are so high and the punishment so severe that I think what's much more likely, and I think this was true with a lot of the studies I wrote about in this article, is there's just cherry picking. There's just normal 
what are known as QRPs or questionable research practices. Um, you know, you, you cherry pick the results you want, you bury in the study and leave out of the abstract the results that are not promising. I think almost every, almost every study I wrote about did some version of that. And it's not, it's not fraud, nor should it be considered fraud because, you know, only fraud is fraud, but, uh, it still leads to pretty misleading uh, research that can muddy the waters of like, you know, what the answers to certain crucial questions are. Okay. Uh, well, I, I guess that's kind of slightly comforting because at least that opens the door to people like you to look into the data. And you, you genuinely seem like someone who at the end of the day will go where the data goes. And I know you've expressed opinions that there are some children um, when identified early on, that are clear candidates for this. And so it, it, it's good to know uh, based off of your opinion. My follow-up is, and I've asked you before, what are your thoughts about debates entering someone? And I know as you bounce the line of journalist on this, you might not want to come off necessarily on one side. And you've mentioned you far prefer conversations over debate, but it's very on both sides, you know, when you hear from subject matter, matter experts, you, you often come away with a sense of clarity. And I find it hard to really see those challenging opinions directly challenge each other otherwise, unless there's some kind of debate. And I'm just wondering, if not you, maybe someone else. It feels like there's a need for debate to jump into this, because after reading or honestly skimming some of your article, I... I, my question is, okay, now I have to look for a rebuttal and what kind of rebuttal is that? And yeah, it feels like there's a need for some kind of back and forth here. Well, so I'm, I'm on the email list of, um, what's it called? Intelligence squared. And they run these debates both on, I guess, like live stream and I've gotten to some in-person ones. And that's, that really is the strict debate format where it'll be like, um, you know, there was one on, uh, I saw John Hyde and Robbie Suave argue whether or not social media is harming young people. And in that format, you really need to take the pro or con position. That's like the whole conceit of it. And I just, I would not be comfortable doing that unless the question was framed in like a pretty debate, unfriendly, unsexy way. Like, you know, I would take the pro position on if the statement is researchers are overstating the evidence we have for blockers and hormones. But I think unfortunately the way debate formats usually work is like you have to be for or against the treatments themselves. And I'm definitely not for or against the treatments themselves. I'm, I'm for looking at the data and figuring out who will benefit from them, them the most. So that's why even if I were invited to do a debate debate, which I haven't been, cause I, I haven't found my critics generally, there are a couple exceptions. They don't generally want to talk about this in like a, um, you know, open setting where I can ask follow up questions and stuff. But yeah, the, the debate pro or con, I wouldn't be interested in discussion. I'm happy to do is what it comes down to. Okay, sounds good. I mean, I, I can fantasize weird fantasies about you know a similar debate to the way like Eric Weinstein hosted a Sam Harris versus Jordan Peterson on theological debate. But I know. You need the other side, and uh, it, that kind of debate's not necessarily the sexiest debate when you have two people that are often agreeing and maybe only disagreeing. Yeah, look, if someone if someone has the platform and power to set up a debate on the, you know, debating the statement, the evidence for blockers and hormones is is solid or even overwhelming. Happy to happy to do that. I just wouldn't want to be seen as like an advocate for against the treatments themselves. But uh, fair question, Joshua. I'd like to do something like that at some point. Okay. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Joshua. You too. Ben, what is up? 
Hey, how's it going, Jesse? Thanks Good. for taking the call. Of course. Um, yeah, so I just have a really quick comment slash question, I guess, on the topic at hand. Um, I think that the kind of maybe threat is the wrong word, but the sort of like hanging threat of suicide reminds me a lot of the kind of like borderline personality disorder if you break up with me, I'll kill myself sort of thing. It, it, is there anything like that with you? Like, does it give you a kind of ickiness to hear people say, like, you have to affirm this particular type of thing, otherwise you're, you know, essentially wishing death upon a, a, a portion of the population? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, abusive. it feels abusive. It's also just the wrong way to approach a scientific question, unless you right. yeah. have a lot of evidence that there's, that just, you know, all else being equal, if you don't access this treatment, you'll kill themselves is a, is a crazy big claim. And that's, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's, it's, it's now a habit at this point. If you disagree with anyone on anything on this stuff, you want people, yeah. kids to kill themselves, which is horrible. And I, and I don't think that it's like necessarily the case, you know, in all, in all subjects where this sort of thing is, is, is the sort of tactic is used that there isn't evidence. I just think that if you had good evidence, you would lead with that and you wouldn't need to say, you know, if you don't support this, you're supporting the, these, this, the death of this population. It's like, if you have good evidence to support your claim, you would have that way before you go to, like, the extremes of, you know, you're essentially a murderer, right? Like, that feels like you don't have evidence if you're saying stuff like that. But it's not necessarily the case, I guess. Um, but, it, but in this case, it feels like it. Because I... I don't know. I, I, I have to read uh, your whole piece as well just to get even more context on this. But, yeah, it feels weird. I don't, I don't like the way that it comes off. No, I, I think, unfortunately, the tendency has been toward, like, very heavily intense moralizing arguments. So I'm, I, I'm with you on that. We need to focus on the data because it's not great. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Uh, someone in chat says, do you understand that p-value cannot prove a null hypothesis, only just give, it in, give evidence against it? You stated the null was proved multiple times in the article. Do me a favor and just send me an email with exactly the language you're talking about. It's a 12,000-word piece, and it's, it's hard always to um, express statistical claims with complete precision. Like people with PhDs fuck that up. So if I fucked it up, I'll, uh, I'll correct it. But just send me an email with the ag exact language you need so I can know what you're talking about. Um, it's hard for me to respond on the spot otherwise. Um, Michael, what is up? Okay, am I live now? Thank You're you. live. All right. Thank you, Jesse. I want to ask you about science versus and institutional credibility loss. So when Joe Rogan had Tim Pool and some Twitter executives on, they talked about why they were banning people for things like misgendering. And they quoted a bunch of the very research you're talking about here. And it gave me the idea that one institution being, being corrupted or downgrading or lost somehow has a domino effect on other institutions. And I think that's what we're seeing here with the researchers in the transgender field, the media that cover it, the activist groups. And the political groups, um, if you accept my premise, what do you think is the first domino? Where did this go wrong? How did we get here? 
Yeah, I mean, so the point I make in my article, I think, is a cousin to your point, and that is Science Versus has come out very staunchly against, like, you know, fake news in the world of science and against alternative sources of information on things like the coronavirus vaccine. And I'm I'm with them on that stuff. But my argument is if if you don't cover a subject honestly in a comprehensive way with integrity, which I don't think Science Versus did here, don't be surprised when people do turn to, like, you know, Tim Pool or whoever else you don't like to get their, their data on it. I think, unfortunately, the domino thing is real. I don't know where it started, but I just think we're now locked in this climate where you're it doesn't seem like you're allowed to ask pretty normal 101 level scientific questions about this body of research. And um, these there, I mentioned it in my story, but there are these comprehensive efforts in Europe in particularly Sweden and Finland where, you know, government or government sponsored bodies did that. And they all found the same thing. The evidence sucks. It's low quality evidence that doesn't tell us much about blockers or hormones. So I don't know, man, I think there's like a real, <laughs> rush to not be seen on the wrong side of this issue and and there's a history of issues involving kids that same rush to take the right position evidence be damned and i'm I'm worried that's what's happening here thank you one of my theories is j michael bailey had written about how gay research science is dominated by gay researchers themselves i don't know any stats on it this is like an 18 year old statistic but he said the trans research is filled with a lot of people who are trans themselves and that may color the way they design experiments. So that's my theory. The first domino is changing who is the actual researchers. I think I disagree with that just because I've seen no, um, some of the most ardent people unwilling to look at the data in my experience are like cisgender people who want to show they're on the right side. So I think None of this is easy to like verify, but I think whatever the psychological force of being in the group and wanting to defend its interests, I, I think there's just as strong a psychological force of like wanting to be seen as a good ally if you're not in the group. But that's all speculation. But um, and I'm torn because I want there to be a lot of trans researchers researching this stuff. I do think they have a lot to add, obviously, and and I'd prefer a world a lot of them to almost none of them. But um, I get what you're saying. As a general human impulse, like we all have our our biases. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael. Pongo two, what's up? Uh, hello. Hey, Pongo. Yeah. Um, thanks, Jesse. Uh, I guess two things. Um, well, I guess three things. Firstly, just I think I said this to you before after a previous article, but um, excellent work. Thank you. Um, and two, I'm sorry that it, I'm sorry that it's not going to accomplish anything. I already um, know that. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. So, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but you know. Um, I guess, yeah, so two questions about it. So first one is about um, just looking, I, I, I have the time to look through the whole thing. Um, you never use the word p-hacking, but um, when you look at all the data sets, it does appear that almost all of them are characterized by having a whole bunch of different, popu like, uh, you know, population intervention combinations, um, all, almost all of which are either statistically insignificant or going in the opposite way that the uh, authors would obviously prefer based on their... Uh, based on what they appear to be bringing in as their biases, and yet they'll only report one of them. Yeah. Um, you've pro like, uh, one of the standards of evidence-based medicine is that you're supposed to designate like a, a very like as few clear endpoints as you can to like going into adjust for bias. And it doesn't seem like any of these people are doing that. No, I mean, it, it, in science versus defense, a lot of the studies they quote are like, 
uh, from the era where like maybe people were getting more knowledgeable about questionable research practices but weren't there yet. But yeah, one of the big things you do is you throw everything at the wall statistically um, and just see what sticks. And then you report what sticks as though that's what you were looking for all along. But I I don't it, – it's very weird where you'll, you'll read the abstract and they'll be like, this provides evidence for these treatments. And then you'll look at their tables and what they reported. You're just like – Either there's nothing there or the kids were so healthy at baseline psychologically we can't say anything about it. So I, I this is like a case study in questionable research practices. And I actually think it's unfortunate that a lot of the biggest names in psychology and the replication movement, my sense is they won't touch this because why would you? Like if you study power posing and talk about how there's replication issues there, no one's going to accuse you of killing kids because you criticize power posing. This is a whole different beast. Well, they all made they all made their careers by criticizing power posing or whatever. Now they've got theirs, and they just need to not screw it up long enough to you know, <laughs> die. That might be the case in some instances. They've moved into this. They've moved into the defending orthodoxy stages of their academic lifestyle or life. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll uh, all so get there eventually. Yeah, we we all, if we're lucky. Um, but uh, yeah, the other thing I guess was uh, specifically about the Dutch study, like. Um, you mentioned uh, that it had like the, the population they got, in, as you said, was like a very well, very well supported, uh, had lots of mental health interventions. And as a result, had very low levels, almost like negligible or population background levels of depression, anxiety, et cetera. Um, do you find that like uh, so I'm a, like I'm a clinician myself, um, given like the even setting aside all the unknown negative effects of puberty blockers and hormone treatments, just been known as in like intended ones in which they essentially if followed to their end, end stage, they result in basically sterilization and um, like loss of sexual function, it seems, in most cases. Um, in a lot of the Dutch cases, they probably wouldn't because I think they started blockers later. But yeah, it's, it's, there's some fuzziness there, I believe. But given, given the fact that these patients appear to be doing quite well, whatever level of gender dysphoria they're experiencing, it, it doesn't seem to be reflected in suicidality or mood disorders or anxiety disorders or anything. Like from a clinical perspective, I mean, we take it from the approach of like, do no harm. If somebody isn't in, it, 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 it doesn't seem as though these people were actually in severe distress and having such a radical intervention for it, it almost seems questionable. Like it, it seems like it would be more justifiable if you had somebody who for whatever reason you had isolated, you had isolated out all other possible causes and they still had a huge, uh, like ridiculously high PHQ nine score to think about these interventions rather than somebody who, although they might be somewhat uncomfortable in their bodies, uh, seems to be functioning well. Yeah. I think in the Dutch case, it's complicated because this was specifically kids who a did not have, mental health comorbidities and B had had gender dysphoria for a long time. And then at the onset of puberty, it didn't go away. So it's hard to know how to interpret it. I mean, one interpretation is like they waited till they were 12 to go on blockers, which is pretty deep into puberty. And it's not like, it's not like they be suddenly their mental health plummeted or they became suicidal, but that could just be an effect of, um, or an artifact of the, not artifact, what's the word I'm looking for? That could be because this was a particularly healthy, resilient, well-supported group of kids. We can't say for sure that other kids who are equally dysphoric would not have suffered from having a weight. And I think that's the argument a lot of advocates for these treatments will give you, is that for kids who do have unremitting serious gender dysphoria, forcing them to go through puberty will have a negative effect on them. I don't think we have studies showing exactly that, but I also think it's a hard thing to you know, study ethically and rigorously. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean... 
it does seem as though, <clears throat> like, if you're going to be doing puberty blockers at all, like, generally speaking, when you're, if you're studying it, it seems as though we do have something, like, at the, like the most generous way to express the evidence for puberty blockers right now would be to say that we have cl clinical equipoise. That is, we genuinely don't know whether they help or harm you. In that circumstance, it seems like it shouldn't be too hard from like a like, I mean, it would cost money, but from like a like ethical perspective to simply run an actual RCT. I almost wrote about this because I, I think th that idea is now seen as off the table because it would be unethical, which I think is like sort of pretty severe question begging. It's un you're saying it's unethical because we already know these treatments help, but there's no RCTs. We don't know they help. So I... I don't understand the argument against an RCT, uh, and I think it relies on the idea that Science Versus adopted, that we already know a ton about these treatments and how helpful they are, but an that RCT is, is not happening. Yeah, exactly. An RCT, unfortunately, isn't happening, but I think I might write about this further. We have samples of kids, including in some of the studies I mentioned here, who, who are forced to have to wait to go on blockers or hormones. And in these few non-representative samples we have, they're not they're not like descending into a pit of anguish and having to kill themselves. Now this could be because they're in contact with the clinic and are otherwise supported, but I, 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 people are just drawing way too straight a line here where like, if you have to wait at all or you don't get access to the thing when you want it, you're going to kill yourself. That's the limited data we have on that doesn't show it. But again, it's a hard thing to study. Right. And, and if, if all that is necessary in order to forestall the suicide, et cetera, is getting in contact with a clinic and having adequate normal mental health support, then shouldn't we just be doing that? It seems, if any, if nothing else, I mean, I, I mean, psychological support is expensive, but the medications involved, if we're just talking SSRIs or whatever, are far more, far, far more affordable and far less uh, like risky than these other ones. We definitely need studies that control for access to to the treatment, because from what I've seen, that there's some evidence that that attenuates any positive effects of blockers or hormones. But these are all very good questions, and it's all stuff Sorry, I wish I, uh, yeah, I knew more I'll, about. I'll let you. I'll let you go. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> No, those are great questions. Thank you. Paul, what's up? Paul, how's it going? You got to unmute yourself. Hit the little icon in the lower right with the microphone. Hey. Hey. Can you hear me? I can. Sorry. First time using it. Is it working? Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I'm I'm a grad student myself in, in clinical psych, so um, funny to piggyback on another clinician. And I do a little bit of neuroscience research myself, and I just wanted to follow up on a point related to a comment that uh, the earlier caller made, uh, Michael, about yeah. questioning the extent to which trans-identifying researchers were doing this research uh, on the on the topic of, I guess, puberty suppression. And I don't, I don't have any data about that. Uh, that's an empirical question with an empirical answer, but it did remind me of my own personal experience trying to get involved in doing some of this research myself. And so I... I was initially just interested in the topic because through coursework on like cognitive development and multiculturalism, I thought it would be interesting to, to look into. And I was kind of shocked, uh, like to figure out as you've been writing over the past several years that there's just really limited evidence overall. And specifically with respect to cognition, I don't know if that's something that, um, I, you'll have to forgive me. I didn't read today's, uh, article that you wrote, but I plan to, but I'm, I'm not sure if you've written about, any kind of findings with respect to that, but what you'll see as of at least two years ago, when I was looking at this, there was literally just like one, one study on the topic. And we're talking about samples of like, I, I missed kids. a beat there, but you're saying that the difference between cognition for kids who go on blockers. 
Yeah, we just don't have any data on the outcomes with respect to their cognitive development. And, of course, puberty is associated with rapid. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I tried to to do this research, I was just trying to apply for this small grant for the – it was an APA grant, $9,000, nothing huge. But I honestly – I mean this is just me, my experience, but I felt like I encountered a bit of hostility. Almost uh, certainly a lot of questioning as to why I was interested in this topic. I, I met with, um, to be specific here, I met with individuals who are like a coordinator and a clinician at the gender clinic at my local the university that I am a grad student at. And it was just a lot of what are you going to do if the data shows a certain thing? And I, I was pretty stunned by that question in particular. That's crazy. About, so they, they sort was, of uh, uh, approached you from the perspective that you'll find stuff that'll be harmful. Yeah. Or at the very least, what would I do if that were the case? And I had to have a satisfactory response. And then the end of the conversation was basically like, here's a list of people that we need to have on the project if you want us involved. And by us, they meant that like, if I was going to recruit out of their clinic, which where else would I be able to recruit, right? Like flyers on the street. So they wanted to make sure that I had individuals who were trans identifying, which is totally legitimate if not for the fact that it was a nine thousand dollar grant like i gotta pay the subjects i wasn't gonna get like an r01 or something we're talking about a very small very very small pilot study for people who don't have context to like how little money that is for research so yeah that's a depressing but telling story yep so no uh i ended up not applying for the grant i do research on other stuff i just wanted to share the story because it it did uh your, your other guest's comment reminded me of that. So Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I think there's a lot of people being chased out, out of this area of research. I just I can't imagine the differences in being a researcher who also identifies as an advocate who is in it to prove that these treatments work or that there's nothing to worry about versus someone who approaches it in a more scientific way. That's what worries me, and I think that leads to skewed results. And I guess as I, as I leave, I'll just ask you the question of like what do we do to, I guess – change that to, to make it less activism focused and more, um, neutral. Yeah. I think you, you know, I'd want more journalists. I, I think there's been problem. There's been progress on the journalism front. There's a big magazine story coming out that is going to change the conversation. If my understanding is correct, this isn't a major outlet. And then, you know, not to be egocentric, but I want more journalists to do what I did. Just, just look at the studies, show, show, look into what they really say and compare that to the claims made about them. Just do some fucking science journalism. Like we know how to do science journalism. So, um, yeah, that's how you improve things. And I, and you, I like make the advocates and the scientists supporting these, uh, treatments answer tough questions about them. Why should they not have to answer tough questions about them? If they're getting quoted in major outlets and they're making money off these treatments. I mean, this stuff, as I say it out loud, it seems very obvious, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree. Thanks for thanks for uh, doing what you do. Of course, thanks for the call. It's not my fault. What's up? I can't hear you at all. You got to boost your mic. I guess I don't heard that CBT. You're coming in so low, but I think I understood the question. Um, the answer is things like CBT and these drug studies almost always have RCTs behind them. Now, 
especially with drugs. There's all sorts of shenanigans I don't understand because I've never looked into it involving FDA approval. And I think people have a lot of reasons to question certain drug findings. But just that basic question of whether you have a randomized controlled trial with a genuine control group and random assignment into that condition or the control condition, yes, we have that for CBT. We have that for other forms of talk therapy. We have that for drugs. That doesn't mean you can end the conversation there and say that, yep, these treatments work, but it's just a much higher quality standard of evidence than a situation like with blockers and hormones where we don't have a single RCT and we have very few uh, studies that even have genuine comparison arms. Um, so that's my answer. He dropped out. Rye, what's up? Rye, you got to hit the little uh, lower right mic. Hey, yep. Sorry about that. No, no worries. Um, I just, uh, sorry, I haven't had a chance to read the article yet. So if, uh, you covered this or if someone already, and I kind of got in light that someone already asked it. Then, it's 80,000 uh, words to, long. So I, I don't expect people to read you it. Can tell, you, can, you can tell me to shut up if, uh, if I'm covering old, old ground, yep. but have you, have you ever read, uh, the book, nothing is true and everything is possible? No. Uh, so it's a really interesting book about like, um, media in Russia and like Steve Bannon kind of talked about when he was doing his campaign, the idea of kind of flooding the zone with shit, you know? Oh, okay. Like having, you get like so much stuff in there, people can't really sift what's true and not true. And it seems yeah. like that's kind of happening with some of the research now where it's almost like we need fewer studies of higher quality, uh, if that makes sense. And, yeah. And so because what happens is, you know, some, you know, there's a good study over here, a bad study over here, and people just kind of hold them up and say equal. But really what we need is just fewer studies overall, but more of them to be good. So how do you, do you think there's a way to, engineer that or alter the system to make that happen yeah i mean i think it, no that's a really good point if we had like 10 legitimate studies that would be better than the you know 30 that keep getting recycled as evidence uh i don't know how to engineer that i know that as i mentioned in the piece there's a dallas gender clinic that that's that wrote one of the studies i mentioned or talk about and they're one of the few clinics that's actually like produced data over time, tracking the outcomes of their patients. Of course, Republicans in Texas tried to shut them down entirely and more or less succeeded. Um, but we just need, we need way more clinics to do that. We need way more clinics to treat this as an unknown rather than like, there's some research out of clinics where like, they're obviously just trying to show their stuff works and they don't really even allow for the possibility it doesn't. So I don't know how to engineer that. I, I wish there was a little bit more pushback on, like, I don't know if you'll, you're definitely not going to get a pure RCT at this point, but if you had a study where kids were already in contact with a clinic and they were closely monitored for, like, suicidality and major mental health concerns, that, that there were, I don't understand how there are, like, actual, I know I'm going to be called a monster for saying that, but I don't see what the actual ethical concerns are because, again, we've already put kids through studies like that in other contexts, and it's, it's just not the case that it's like, oh, you might have to wait longer for hormones, so you instantly kill yourself. If, they're, if their mental health problems are under control and they're in contact with a mental health clinic, they would, there wouldn't be much risk there. So I wish someone would run actual studies. I just think it's very unlikely. Yeah, um, and then kind of following up on the study part because we don't, you know, like you said, we're not going to be able to do that study even though I think – I also think that would be a really good thing to do. But one thing we do have is just kind of historical and like worldwide evidence a little bit, right? So, I mean, if the if the claim is that without this treatment, you see like massive increases in suicidality, we should be able to look at countries where they don't have access to this sort of treatment at all. And we should be able to see, you know, those sorts of things spiking or be able to see that in history, right? And I feel like that evidence just isn't there. So I know it's not a perfect study, but I feel like that can serve as a bit of a proxy for leading which way we'd want to go with this a little bit. 
I mean, you would also think that in the U.S. there had yeah. been over the years millions of kids who would kill themselves without access to puberty blockers and hormones before those treatments existed. Like in much the yeah. same way, people who couldn't, you know, needed antibiotics before those were existed just died. Where I, it's it's a morbid exercise, but it's like where where where. Where did this happen? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I'm 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 obviously okay. with you on the need for better uh, research. Okay, last last question. Um, sure. Are you going to get high before your heterodox conference with Katie? No, for me, <laughs> a the alt- altitude, b my reactions to marijuana when it's not tempered by other substances. I would just freak out on stage. But I can't speak for Katie though, so we'll see. All right. Well, thanks for uh, taking the call. I'll talk to you later. Of course. Julia Mason, who I believe I cited some of uh, one of your letters or articles. How's it going, Julia? It's going okay. Oh, you, did you cite the Levine paper? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I can't claim much credit for that, but it is it is pretty awesome. So, yay. I thought it was good. Um, <laughs> well, no, I was definitely there. Anyway, um, I was just calling somebody. Somebody said, what can we do? And I do want to, I recommend anybody who's listening to our organization, Genspect, G-E-N-S-P-E-C-T. I think it's .org. And uh, they've got a lot of information there and, and ways that you can help if you're any kind of person. And if you are a researcher or a clinician or a psychologist, um, there's SEGM, the Society for Evidence-Based Gen- You're cutting out, but that's Sega and the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. I've, I've seen them do some good stuff, yeah, too. Yeah, and so um, we, we, we've been working hard on, on pushing back at some of the most egregious, you know, papers that come out, like the one that came out of uh, University of Washington, Seattle, where it, well, that you wrote up. <laughs> yeah, my last very long piece on this. Oh my god! And just yeah, just the the statistics on that one are just so crazy. So you know, trying to organize letters to the editor, things like that. Like, hey, can we look at your data? But yeah, secrets. folks should check check out those groups. There, obviously, any group that is like not enthusiastic about these treatments will be tarred as bigoted. But from what I know of um, Sagam in particular, which yeah. I know more about, they do some really good work. Are you guys? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Dr- I think you just got dropped, Julia. But thank you for the call. Patty will be my last call. Philip, I won't be able to take your second time. Just because I got to do something after this. Patty, what's up? Well, I might not quite sound like myself. I've got COVID at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. And oh, I'm I'm going to be fine. Um, could have a whole other conversation about Paxlovid and that whole experience. Very interesting. But at any rate, um, I was just shook not for the first time, by, by what Paul had to say about trying to, you know, do some actual science in this area and how that was shot down, even with a very small grant at stake. And it just, you know, it keeps coming home to me again and again that if we want to see better science here, somehow a really comprehensive debunking has to take place of the death threat, right? Of the suicide threat, but also the idea that trans people are being, you know, murdered in epidemic proportions because those are the, the two claims that are used not just to shut down the science, but also to shut down even, you know, the most sort of mild-mannered discussion of, of you know, what are the impacts of um, accommodating trans women in women's facilities, for instance. So I don't know if others have ideas about how to, you know, uh, go about that. I know that Kitty, uh, a few years back, wrote something uh, tackling the death rate and showing 
how much just frankly sheer dishonesty has been afoot in that area. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just seems to me like the suicidality claims and the actual suicide claims um, are at best, well, or worst, I don't know what's the right, right word there, greatly exaggerated, but it's just really hard to disprove them in real time. And that's why I think, you know, the, the previous caller who said, look at the history, and I'm a historian by training, right? So that's, you know, that's where I tend to go. Yep. We should have, we should have seen masses and masses of dead trans kids in the past. As a historian, also, I like to say, you know, trans kid is a recent invention. Heather Brunskill Evans has written about that, I know. But, you know, it's, you know, you can go, you know, full POMO with this and pure theory and say, well, you know, it's a basic Foucauldian uh, insight that some of these categories that we use today to, to capture ideas about gender and sexuality are historically quite new and contingent. So at any rate, um, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. And, and if, if you have any thoughts, Jesse, about how we can kind of, you know, Defang this this sort of vastly exaggerated suicide threat. I would love to hear it. Yeah, no, thanks for the call, Patty. I mean, I I know less about the data with kids. I do know you know LGBT kids um, report high mm-hmm. rates of suicide ideation and and in some cases attempts. The idea that there are massive numbers of trans kids killing themselves does not appear to be supported. What appears to be even less supported is the idea of an epidemic of murder of trans women in the States. Um, the element of truth there is I think if you're a low-income um, trans woman, particularly working in the sex trade, that's like really dangerous. I don't know if like anyone's actually been able to show that's more dangerous than being a low-income cisgender woman in the sex trade, but th- those groups really have alarmingly high rates of violence and murder. But I think we already knew that about the dangers of sex work, and obviously we need to aggressively prosecute violence against sex workers. No one's arguing with that. I I think there's a bunker mentality and I don't think it actually helps the groups involved for them to think that every time they leave the house, there are a bunch of people seeking to murder them. And I think there are horrible instances of suicide and there are horrible instances of homicide, but I try to take the same approach I take to terrorism, which is if you're scaring the shit out of people by saying that like, you know, the circa 2005 claim that Islamic terrorism poses an existential threat to the U.S., that's not helpful. We need to put risks in context, and we need to give people accurate information about this stuff. So that's all I have to say about that. It does worry me that people keep almost gleefully reciting the same debunked statistics. Um, I think one of the ones Katie looked into is that trans women of color have an average lifespan of 35, which is just completely made up. So folks can look for her research on that or work on that. But I am. Um, yeah, I agree. Um this was a good conversation. It's been about an hour. No one left in the queue anyway, so I'm going to wrap it up. But um, thank you guys very much for listening. I'm very open to feedback um, about what I published today because it was very long. I didn't have an editor. I may have made mistakes. I had a copy editor who I was very grateful for. No actual editor. And Baranoff, if you're still in the room, definitely send me an email. I'm, I'm happy to hear you out, and I may have misphrased something or gotten something wrong. It would not shock me with an article of this length if I don't need to correct or update a few things, and I'm happy to do so. But in the meantime, I hope uh, – do me a favor. Tell people about this room. Definitely tell people about the article I wrote today. I, I hope it is durable as a – not a debunking of these studies, but as a like – it's complicated-ing of them because I'm not sure you can like quite debunk them, but I want people to know what the studies do and don't say. I don't see how anyone could argue with that, the importance of doing that. Thank you again. I hope you all have a good weekend. And anyone listening, I hope um, if you're in Denver, feel free to introduce yourself. I hope to see you at the event. Farewell.